You ever have one of those days where you're just a half a pot of coffee short? You know, two cups just don't do it. You need like five. I think it says 12 on the thing, so maybe it's six cups. Maybe that's what I really need, you know. Six cups of coffee, I'm really good. I usually have that much. Like literally drink two Yetis before like 9 o'clock. I mean, that seems about right. And then I'm good like the rest of the day. Like, huh? Is that bad? I tell myself, I'm ta- I, I tell myself most of it's water. It's flavored water. I'm technically hydrating myself. <laughs> I don't feel hydrated, though, but it, I try to tell myself that. Hey, this morning, we're going to, uh, you know, as I was approaching which way to head here, uh, whether I wanted to start a new series or uh, I'm not really good when it comes to being creative on the whole series side. I think, uh, I think truthfully, in all of my ministry, the best series I did was, unfortunately for those who missed it, but the war series that we kind of started church on, we had like a seven-week series, and maybe I'll like go back and revisit it sometime, but that, that series to me was like probably one of my favorites personally, where I dug into so much of my past, and I dug into so much of what God has kind of done through me in the past 10 years, and so uh, when it comes to series, I'm just not as creative, and, I, and like I have this like tendency to think, man, I'm just not creative enough, or but one thing I do love doing is going through books or uh, going through different places in the Bible. Because here's what I found out. And as pastors, I'm going to tell you right now, pastors don't like to preach to any one individual. They, I mean, they kind of do, but here's what happens. It never fails in youth ministry. I've got these kids that may be struggling with whatever. Maybe it's relationships. So I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to teach on relationships. And that couple, they're going to come, and I'm going to hammer them. Right? And that's kind of like the idea, right? And like, no, no lie, I'll be like, get it ready. And sure enough, like anybody that's a couple in, the, in there will like be gone. Like that week, they just happen not to come. They don't know what I'm going to preach, but they won't be there. Right? It never fails. Never fails. Uh, uh, and so like, I, I remember so many pastors would talk about, you know, like uh, when they would talk about like speaking in tongues and wanting to address some of the things there. Uh, a lot of times in the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of uh, abuse in the giftings. And so a lot of pastors want to like, just like, I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to hammer it down. But then those people don't come to church that morning. And you're like, it would, that, everybody else is fine. Like, I don't even need this sermon this morning. But so, so like one of the things that we kind of learn to do as pastors is not to chase things. There's no point chasing. Teach the Word of God. Teach the whole Word of God. So one of the things I found as I started teaching books is it made me start teaching about stuff that I really don't want to talk about. Like, I don't even want to talk about it because it's awkward, uh, like uh, especially when you get into Corinthians or uh, uh, where it talks about uh, people having sex, you know, uh, uh, in the church inappropriate and all this other stuff going on. You're like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. Like, this is not going on in my church, God. Yeah, but uh, it, it, that's the reason Paul's teaching on it, because it happens. Stuff happens. Where as long as we're human and we're going to have problems, things happen. And so as we see in the Bible, there's always like if we begin to teach on something or go through a book, we're kind of forced to deal with some things down the road. You know, maybe things we're not even struggling with, but they're good things to know. And then when we do come across something, it's like I couldn't have timed it any better. We just happen to be at this place, and it is what we just have to talk about. So it ain't like where you go, well, Pastor, you're targeting me. It's not. We're literally just going through the book. I'm not targeting anybody. We're like, it just happens to be that time. Uh, it would never fail that I would preach on, like, I remember going through uh, Ephesians, and we, we came into the part of homosexuality, and that was the one week. Somebody comes, somebody brings their homosexual friend to church, and I was like, man, look at that. I mean, like, and then I felt bad because I was like, the first sermon this guy hears me beating that drum, man. Like, like it's so cliche, so to speak, right? I mean, like, he's like, he's gonna totally miss the other. I mean, like, I'm trying to preach in love, you know. I mean, like, but this guy's gonna think this guy just changed his whole sermon, you know, and I I would feel so awful. But that's what the Lord does. When you start when you start teaching the books, I kind of like that because like how it happens is how it happens. 
I know in my own heart that I didn't target anybody. So one of the things that I thought about as we were kind of approaching is, is I was thinking about, well, what book? I told Joy, she was like, what book are you thinking about? And I was like, well, you want to know where I'm at? She's like, yeah. I was like, I'm in Jeremiah. She's like, oh. She like started to cry. I was like, what's wrong with Jeremiah? She goes, I, you're just always heavy. I live with Jeremiah, man. We're writing the book of Lamentations now. All right, let's know. And so I was like, you know what? I said, the other thing that's on me right now is I'd love to just talk about Jesus. Just talk about Jesus, man. Let's just get to know Jesus. Get to know him by seeing what he's gone through in his life. Let's hear what the things that he says, hear what he teaches and things like that. So I don't want to say that I'm going to take from any one book, but I think I'm going to try to stay in Luke. And I'm going to just preach on his life. Um, I want to explore who Jesus is. Uh, if, the, if the object is to become like him, then I think it's important that we know him. I think that goes without saying, right? The challenge here really is not so much how much you know. Listen here, because this is a very big difference here. The, not, the challenge is not how much do you know about Jesus, but do you actually know him? Big difference, all right? I can tell you by some of the books that I read all about these people. Like I, I, I read a Leonard Ravenhill book every single year because it's a call out on how to live my life. And it's for those who, like, do ministry and things like that because he's really calling out pastors in this book. And so every year, like, I read that book as a call to my heart to, to make sure that I'm walking the right road, you know. And, uh, but, and, and so because I read so much of it, I can tell you, like, based off of reading and his style of writing, a lot of what he probably thinks. And I've read a lot of books about him, and I've got his biography at the house, and I can tell you all about Leonard Ravenhill. But you, and, and the crazy thing is, I can quote him. I can quote half that book because I've read it so many times. But I'll, I've never met him. I don't know him. And if you, if you was to ask Leonard Ravenhill from the grave, like, who's Jim Corsi? He'd be like, I don't know that guy. Probably some sorry pastor. <laughs> I, I don't know what he'd say, you know? He, don't know, he wouldn't know me. I know about Leonard Ravenhill, but I don't know Leonard Ravenhill. But with Christ, it's different. He's a risen God, right? So it's not about knowing about him, and and we're going to learn about him. But it's in the effort so that you might know him, right? And, And the other thing is this. Every year we celebrate two hallmarks of the Christian faith. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, right, at Christmas. And then we celebrate Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what about everything else? We don't talk about it. I mean, we do, but like we do it in sermons here and there. And a lot of sermons are built to tell us how to live. How can we live like Christ? Which is great. But I'm telling you, like when we tell you all the time in prayer, focus your eyes on Jesus, look at Jesus, because what we become, we behold. That's kind of a leadership lesson. What we become, we, what we gaze on, what we are looking at all the time is what we become. Well, let me tell you something. If we learn more about Christ, we begin to spend a, a significant amount of time looking at Jesus, looking at his life, looking at the things he does, trying to imitate Jesus. This is when we get to come, become the image of Jesus. And so that's kind of the whole point to this. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 1. Real simple. Real simple, Luke chapter, Luke chapter one. Uh, I, well, maybe chapter two here. Where's my electronic Bible when I need it, man? I thought about Mark, and then uh, I was like, no, Mark's kind of whiny, you know. <laughs> it's true, y'all know who Mark is, right? He didn't, he didn't, like, witness it himself. You know that Mark was, uh, he scribed it for Peter, that they believe Mark's gospel is Peter. And Mark is John Mark, the one that Paul said, oh, I don't want nothing to do with because this guy just cries about wanting to go home all the time. 
right? And Barnabas is like, all right, I'll take the crybaby back, but come on with us, you know? And he's like, I'm not going back with y'all. You can take care of that dude. I'm going on, right? That's why, like, I have this, like, it's not, listen, I love John Mark and all. I mean, he's good. He gave us the gospel according to Mark, but I don't, I mean, if I have to prefer one, I love, like, Luke, who's speaking always to the Gentiles, or Matthew, which, by the way, boggles the mind that you would make a tax collector speak to the Jews. They don't even like him. They'd have probably listened to the Gentile more than they would have liked him. Or actually, why not John? Listen to John. All right, let me look here. I think I'm in the wrong chapter. Yeah, I think I'm in chapter 2. All right, I'm all messed up now. My scripture's messed up. You know you make one typo. Is it four? Maybe it's chapter four. All right, it's chapter four. I'm way off. Way off. I tell you about the pot of coffee. Come on now. <clears throat> Just the verses 1 and 2. Just hang right there at verses 1 and 2. All right? I'm, I'm reading out of the New Living just because it talks like I do. Um, it says this, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Now, most of us know what's going to happen here. If you've read anything about Jesus, uh, it's how hard is it for as a pastor to come in and teach you something you've already heard a lot of, especially when we talk about temptation and all these things, which is kind of what we're talking about. Uh, but um, hopefully, maybe I can unfold some things maybe you hadn't thought before, maybe just hear it, you know how the Lord does that, just like quickens your ear for the first time to hear it a different way. Um, so Jesus has returned now uh, uh, from the Jordan River. Uh, and if you remember, this is where uh, uh, he was baptized by John. Yes, Jesus was also baptized. Uh, uh, so it was from this moment, it says, that the Spirit uh, drove him into the wilderness. Uh, and I want you to pay attention to that, that the Spirit is what drove him into the wilderness or led him into isolation or led him into the desert, uh, uh, regardless of what you want to call it, into a place where he would be alone. This would be a place where his character or his humanity would be tried, it would be revealed uh, 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 everything about him would just begin to come out. This is him throwing in the fire. Let's see what stands. All right? And, and listen, God just doesn't throw Jesus on the cross without giving him some experiences to help him endure. Let me say that again. God didn't just throw Jesus on the cross without giving him some experiences that would help him endure. Listen to that, because that's like a whole sermon that I don't got time to preach. All right? Uh, uh, he, isn't, uh, he isn't going to be tempted by just anything either or by anyone. This guy's going to be tempted by the devil. This is like President Evil. I mean, this guy's got like the patent on how to be the bad guy, how to be evil. Uh, and he's like, he's like bad in a different way. I mean, like when we pitch the devil as being this bad looking guy or this awful guy, we think that he's saying these awful things. Like we picture almost what it is to be a sinner, really. Like somebody who's got a filthy mouth and uh, a lustful mind and all these things. And yet the devil quite often is the most subtle. He's the guy that tells like the truth that it's 99% truth, but that 1% is all the difference. You know, some of us lie like that. Y'all know where you're like, well, I just didn't tell him everything. You know, that kind of stuff, right? Where we say like a half truth 
Or we like don't disclose all the information kind of stuff. He's subtle like that, right? Makes you think he's your friend, that kind of stuff like that. This is like the president of evil, right? So this whole time in the desert, this whole time away from things, it's not like vacation. It's not. I mean, he's, he's alone, right? And let me state something obvious here. There is no preemptive prayer against facing anything like this. You don't see him going, well, I better pray myself up, Right? He doesn't, uh, Jesus doesn't pray to the Father that he somehow escapes having to go through this. He doesn't pray himself out. How many times do you find yourself praying yourself out of the desert? Lord, this is a horrible thing to go through. Why am I having to suffer it? Please, God, help me get out of it, right? But we don't hear this from Jesus at all. He isn't found praying against any of it. Rather, he walks towards it. He endures it. And ultimately, we're going to see that he conquers it. Now, some things, regardless of how tough spiritually, emotionally, and even physically... We're going to have to go through them, guys, right? You can't go around some things. And listen, it's, detri- it's detrimental to who you become. Some of the things you're meant to go through in life, and it's okay. It's okay. You're going to be like Jesus. You're going to come out of the wilderness stronger because of it, right? We all know the idea. I'm sure you hear it. They've got 50 million memes for everything that sounds cool out there, right? You know, the, the reason the trees are strong are why? Because of the wind, the more the wind pushes and pulls at it, it stresses the tree. When the tree stresses, it tends to grow its roots. The deeper the roots, the greater the tree stands, right? But the tree can't stand without the wind. It needs adversity to grow. That'll preach, guys. That was like, I could have just stopped right there, dropped the mic. We could have we been done right there. So here's Jesus, right? He's fasting. We know that uh, uh, because it says it. Other translations say that actually uh, that Jesus was at the end of his fast when he was tempted. For instance, if you read the NIV, uh, which is probably one of the more popular ones, it says he ate nothing during those days, but at the end of them, he was hungry. So Jesus had been fasting already for 40 days. Uh, I don't know about you if you fasted ever with like a, like a juice fat where you just did juice or water or things like that, if you've ever done anything where it's no food. Uh, some of you are like, man, I can make it to dinner. I can make it like one, I can do one meal a day. I pretty much fast every day. One meal. That's all I do. I, all I eat is one meal anyway. No, that's not fasting. Uh, that's starving. <laughs> that's not fasting. Um, fasting, for, for here, it's for, for Jesus in this moment, it's not eating. It's not eating anything, right? And uh, I, I don't know about you. I, I remember one time, me and uh, Jared, we fasted. We like challenged each other because I'd, I'd fasted up to five days. I was like, I fasted five days before. And I'm just going to tell you what happens to me like at day three. Day three is when I finally kind of break the whole, okay, I'm, I'm like not necessarily that hungry anymore, but I'm noticing I'm watching a lot more cooking shows, <laughs> right? And like day four, I'm emotional. I'm like a girl at that point, like crying a lot. Like, what the heck? Why did they pull out in front of me? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's like all of a sudden, like the feminine side, cause like, what the heck? You know, just because some food? You know, I, or I'm like uh, on edge, you know, temperament, you know, and, and like my wife will know that like if I'm fasting, she's like the first one to say, it's because you're not eating. You need to eat something because I just don't want to deal with this. <laughs> like, and, I, and like the worst part is like, I can't see that. Like, I can't see that I'm being short. Like, and it, but it makes me short when she says it's because you need to eat. Right. So the longest me and Jared, like, we had this like thing and we, we kind of like a, held each other accountable and we went seven days. Now, before you say that's awesome, we waited up till midnight on the seventh day and went and had Whataburger. <laughs> All right? <laughs> uh, the, the awesome part of that seven days was the Whataburger. All right? 
But in this sense right here, Jesus fasted for 40. That's like supernatural feats. I don't know, man. I know that there's some guys out there that have done this kind of thing. I would love to be able to say that I could do something like this, but I'm telling you, at seven days, it was all I could do seven days to not have food for seven days, to not have food. Um, and, and a little side note for fasting, guys. Here's where it really helps you. You want to see what your vices are in life? Fast. You want to see what, you know, God, they say God is a jealous God, and he will not allow idols before him. Watch those things that you think that might be idols. Fast them out of your life. If you are struggling with those things, right, it'll be revealed to you really quick that you need them and, like, that Jesus is not your all in all. See, for me, food often is that for me. For a guy who struggles his weight, it's not because I've got a, 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 a you know, a, a gland issue, guys. I have a mouth issue, and, and I can't get it full for some reason. Um, and so for me, like, when I stress out, I don't turn to Jesus. I turn to donut holes and coffee and steak and fajitas and barbecue and I could keep going my wife when she stresses she bakes so she stress bakes I stress eat if she kills me I'm telling you I'm gonna be upset fasting shows us our vices and that's why I can tell you today like we laugh we make fun of the whole thing but like eating for me you know what it tells me that, that I have an issue with that before the Lord that the Lord is jealous of is he jealous of food? He's jealous over the power it has over me, the fact that I turn to it for comfort instead of him. All right? Like, I can say it jokingly, but the truth of the matter is it's true. It's true. I turn to it before I turn to God. That's what fasting does. So when Jesus goes out and he fasts, Jesus is saying, I want to purge the things that could possibly be. Now, listen, Jesus is sinless. So as we see, he fasts for 40 days. He comes out of the wilderness, man, tried to test it. He was tempted but did not fall into anything, Right? So, like, for, for, for me, so I went seven days, man, I found out real quick where my temptations are, where I fall at. And where, but that's the great thing about fasting, guys. So when you actually think about struggling with idolatry or struggling with these things, you're like, I don't, I don't think I worship any other idol before God. Uh, start to try to live a righteous life. You want to find out how real quick you fall back into things? You'll find out real quick. Like, when, when life gets hard and life gets tough, do you fall upon the Word of God like Jesus does here at the temptation? Or do you fall into a nice drink once in a while? Do you fall into eating food like me? Do you fall? What, what is that for you? Do you like have to get away and get alone and, and sulk in depression? Do you listen? It's weird what becomes idols. It's strange. So it's not easy. This whole part, this whole thing is a wilderness test. And, 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 and so he's, he's fasted for 40 days. He's on the back end of this wilderness test, right? I mean, that's what they're saying. He's already fasted for 40 days. The brother's hungry. Matter of fact, uh, he could totally eat right now. I mean, think about it. He's on the back end. He's already fasted for 40 days. He didn't have to fast anymore. But here, all of a sudden, it says that by the third scripture, or the third, yeah, the third scripture there, the devil shows up. And if you look there at chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. It, hey, it's the obvious right off the bat. Brother, I can tell you're hungry. You've lost some weight. Your ribs are sticking out. You know, you've been out here for 40 days with nothing but some water. You know? So the devil, I mean, he's, he's basically just saying, eat. You're at the back end of this. And, and listen, I don't know about you, and, and I think it looks easy. I mean, I know he just did the 40-day fast. I know he's hungry. And bread is not a bad thing when you're hungry. There isn't anything in the Bible that says you can't eat the bread if you're starving. 
There's no sin there. So what's the big deal, right? Because this is, this is how the devil works, right? He tends to make a lot of sense. Mm. He tends to make a lot of sense. Here's the thing, but there's more than meets the eye. And, and I'm going to see if I can't explain it a little bit. The devil wants Jesus to, the thing that he really wants him to fall for, because it's something we all fall for, uh, it's the very thing that we're constantly like being reevaluated in our life. And it's a question we're always asking ourselves. Uh, two things here that I think is, is taking place. Number one is the very first thing. If you are the son of God. The devil always, always, like his number one tactic is this. Because the one place everyone struggles with is identity. You, I'm going to say this because this is biblical truth. You are the child of God. Anything else is a lie. Anything else is a lie. Right? If you are the son of God. No, he is the son of God. There, there is no question. He, he's trying to make him doubt himself. Like some of you do, right? As soon as something goes wrong, as soon as something goes bad, all of a sudden the devil's come to you. Like, if you were really saved, man, if you were really saved, you wouldn't act like that. Hmm. That's what he does. And then you start to feel bad, and you're like, I don't even think I'm saved in the first place. You know, you're like me when I first got saved. Got baptized like 16 times, right? Like one of the, this water, it's the water. It's got to be the water. You keep getting up there to the altar. One of these times it's going to take, and I'm going to walk away from this altar perfect. Yeah. That's what the devil keeps trying to make you think. Like there's going to be something tangible and physical take place, right? No, it's always this battle of the mind. It's always this battle. Are you, he starts out with questioning your identity. The second thing, he likes, to take, he, he likes to take things that are good, and he likes to make them God things, and I'll explain that a little bit. So when everything starts with the seed of doubt. He, he plays the voice of a friend that's just asking, and how are you? I mean, come on, if you're just the son of God. He's not approaching him like abrasively. He's not saying, yeah, I told you. I mean, he's not, there's, not a, there's not an abrasive way to approach you. He's not trying to front you out or call you out. He's just saying, you know, let me just plant this seed of doubt. You know, it's kind of like, you know, we've made fun of me when I do this to like my, my wife or my kids because this is the cynical side, right, of my humanity or as a father, you know, like, like, like I was, you know, like picking on my brothers kind of thing. But like the subtle thing in, uh, that I've said to my daughters just to, just to poke at them because I know it works and it's devilish, sadly, all right, but just admitting it. Um, are you going to wear your hair like that? Their hair can be perfect. Say that to a woman, guys. See how far that gets you. You plant the seed right there. The seed of doubt in their mind. They could look at that thing and just, like, in their heart, know this is the most perfect hair I have. And, and if you say the one word that doubts that, plants that seed, and all of a sudden, they'll be like, going back in the bathroom for 20 minutes. Even though it's perfect, it planted the seed, and you already started to see different once the seed was planted. That's what the devil does there, man. He makes people struggle to believe in themselves. He makes people struggle to believe in themselves. And Jesus is also trying to get, or the devil's also trying to get Jesus to fall for the same trap we all fall. He's trying to take a good thing like bread, right? And trying to, to make Jesus, uh, make it a God thing. Because this is what he does. He works on us when we're most likely to fall for it. Remember that Jesus is hungry, Right? And if you're hungry and you have the ability to make food, wouldn't you definitely be tempted just to make your own food? Instead of, de and just depend on your ability, then depend on what God can do and God's ability. 
And in doing that, you take something as simple as bread, you make it your source rather than making God your source. So how does Jesus respond? He says in, in verse 4, but Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. So he doesn't fall for it. He doesn't fall for it. I don't know if you understand that idea. Sometimes we settle for good when we could have great. You know, it's kind of the same idea there. Taking, you take a good thing and you can make it a God thing. You take something like food, which is meant for your substance, right? It's meant to, like, make you live. Like, you've got to have it. You know that, right? Like, you can go for 40 days, but guarantee you he had to have water because the physical human cannot do that. And Jesus was like us, all human. So he had to have water for those 40 days. But he could live without food. But he can't live without it forever. So there's nothing wrong with food. God created food. He wants you to have food and live off substance, but it doesn't replace him. God is your source, not your food, not your finances, not anything around you, not your house, none of those things. God is your source. And too often we take something like food and say like for me where food all of a sudden becomes the comfort for my stress, I'm starting to make it a God thing and I have to realize that. So fasting helps me realize that food is, you, you want to know how I learned about how food is my stress and my comfort thing? Because I've fasted. And I found that I struggle with joy when food is missing. Now you say, well, that's obvious. Yeah, but no, 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 no. If the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, God is my joy. He is my substance. I don't live on bread. I believe every word of God. So Jesus doesn't fall for any of this. Bread isn't his source. God is his source. He says, I depend upon the Lord, but that doesn't stop the devil. It never really does. In Luke 4, verses 5 through 7, it says, Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of a time. And he says, I'll give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them. The, de the devil said, Because they are mine to give to anyone I please, I will give them all to you if you will worship we. Now, now, now this, is, this temptation is a little bit different. It's, it, it's really about making something the main thing in your life. Uh, it, oh, it isn't about making something the main thing. It's the temptation is about power, and more importantly, it's about control. So the devil tempts Jesus with the ability to have control and power over all the nations right then and there. Not wait for it, not, not take his time to get there. Not, uh, uh, it's, it's Jesus, I'll give you all the power that the cross is going to give you without having to have the cross. Mm, man, that'll preach all by itself too. He tempts Jesus by saying, you don't have to go down to the road of the cross. You don't have to die for everyone to be a king. Just worship me, and I'll make you a king right now. You won't ever have to feel pain. You won't ever have to feel rejection. And you won't ever have to feel betrayal if you'll just say yes now. I'll, he says, I'll give you more power and control over everything, and more importantly, everyone, right? All these that are about to call you out, all this, you'll have power. Make them your subjects now, without the pain, without the rejection. Mm. Let me see if I can explain some of my thoughts on this. Your role on this earth is to chase the Lord and to let him transform you. That's, I mean, that's what we're doing here. And the key word is you, not everyone else. Quit worrying about everyone else <laughs> and what they are or are not. You need to focus on you. You can't control everything that's going to happen in life. You can't control all of your circumstances, and you definitely can't control anybody else's. We try all the time, and we fail. 
And listen, manipulation and control might bring about the desired results sometimes for some people, but it usually comes at the expense of relationships. It means that down the road, you've manipulated them here, you manipulated them there to get circumstances to happen in your favor, but eventually down the road, people are going to see that, and you're going to lose friendships over it. Control is an illusion. You don't ever have it. You don't have it over your kids. You don't have it over your spouse. You don't have it over your friends. You don't have it at all. You can't drive down the road, man, and say that without a doubt, you could be in complete control. Somebody else is out of control, which causes you not to necessarily be in control. We share this earth with everybody. Control is an illusion. So quit, I mean, you know, with Jesus here, he's like, he doesn't fall for any of this, right? He doesn't fall for this, and you shouldn't either. You can't be in control of everything. You can't control everyone. You can't help what other people are going to do or what they're not going to do. Your job is to let Christ transform you. Transform you. Right? Let's move on. Verse 8. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he's point blank here. He's not deceived. He gets it. He fully understands the spiritual, the spiritual implications of what's taking place, right? And the devil quickly steps in again with another temptation. Relentless, guys. Relentless. Verses 9 through 11. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and protect and guard you, and they will hold you uh, up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now, one of the things I always loved about this, and you used to say all the time, is, man, the devil's good at quoting scripture. I hope you are. I hope you are. Because he sure does know the Bible. Think about what he said. He just quoted it verbatim. He did not misquote it, guys. It's quoted correctly. Now, is he using it right? No. Man, uh, by the way, um, that is most often what happens in Christianity and why there are a lot of people who hate the church and everything else. You know how many people have used the word of God for slavery? You know, you wonder why we have all this race issues today? Because there was a time where we used the word of God to enslave people. There was a time in the Catholic Church when they refused to put the thing in English. Do you know that <clears throat> for the first translation, when it went from Latin to German, all right, just from Latin to German, right, for the longest time, the Catholic Church kept everything in Latin and only scholar people learned Latin so that nobody knew the Word of God. Because the one thing they understood was knowledge is power, and those who have the knowledge have the power. All right, <clears throat> along comes a man, Martin Luther, who was a Catholic priest, who that upon reading the Latin... Bible goes, man, the theology is so awful. Like what they're saying is not true. (laughs) Like the things you and I take for granted, his big thing was justification by faith, which just means that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you are saved. They did not believe that they totally ignored that side of the Bible. And for, and for, think about it. Nobody else could read it. So only a handful of people were smart enough to read it, to even contest it. And when he started to bring it up and contest it, they didn't like that because they were making money off people trying to buy penitence, which is like the idea of buying, uh, if, if I've sinned, all right, for 50 bucks, I'll wipe all your sins away. For 50 bucks, I will wipe all your sins. I will take that. Thank you. I will, I will wipe all your sins away, right? I mean, that's, listen, the sad part is I think a lot of people still look at churches like that, right? Um, and so here, Martin Luther comes and he he uh, 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 steps out and he you know, declares justification by faith. And then, like, that's not as big a deal, but they decide, okay, we need to get rid of this guy. And then it got worse for him. Like, the death warrant, like, reached out on him when he said, uh, I'm going to translate the Bible so that Germans can read it. And now, all of a sudden, 
we have a revolution going on. Because for the first time, the poorest of the poor are going to be able to read the Bible themselves. We're going to educate people. I mean, it blew the whole church up, man. And I don't mean like in a bad way. I mean like it was revolution, man. Revolution. All of a sudden, the poorest of the poor could read, and it wasn't just something the hierarchs had. So the power was depleted out of the church. That's why they'll never be as strong as they were. There's too many people who can read the Bible. Too many people. It starts when people take Scripture and they use it out of context. They read one line and they think that applies to everything and they refuse. Like I, I talk about the scripture for Habakkuk. Let me harp on this a little bit. I talk about the scripture in Habakkuk. There's a, and I think it's Habakkuk chapter 2 where he begins to want to pray. And it's a prayer for, um, it, it's an earnest prayer, honestly. It's a really good one where like he says, and I think all of us would love this prayer. He goes, God, I want to see you like the days of old. I have heard about the things you have done in the days of Moses, God. Lord, but I would love to see them in my day. Right? Now, that's a great prayer, right? And so I hear people all the time, like, they'll quote that scripture. Oh, man, God's about to do a great work. You know, then they're like, man, God's going to do a great work. Da, da, da. Or the scripture the writer comes after, they'll just quote that one little scripture without going underneath it. He goes, behold, I will do something to the li-. Basically, it's like, behold, I will do something to the likes which you've never seen. And so they'll quote that prayer in that scripture and go, God's going to do something and it's going to be great. And you'll see the preacher come up here and he's going to tell you about how wonderful things are going to be. But you know what they don't like to read underneath it? Where it says that God begins to tell you that great and awesome thing that you won't expect, that you can't believe. It's God bringing in the Babylonians because you won't repent to slaughter your nation, to take your children and captives. Uh, arrows that blot out the sky kind of stuff, like this horrible tragedy. But from the horrors of the tragedy will come a remnant that will still believe in God. Hello, Esther. Hello, the stories of Daniel. Hello. But um, you're just going to have to go through hell on earth for a little bit. Nobody reads that part. You ever notice that? Like, why do... That's misquoting Scripture. That's making Scripture quote whatever you want it to say or whatever you need it to say to make something right. Here's what I love about Jesus, because he attacks this. Jesus doesn't let this fly. Like, that's devilish type work when people can just take one scripture and they just make it apply to whatever they, like, ah, this, is, this totally works for this scenario. Lest you dash a foot against your stone, Jesus. You know, and so Jesus is like, um, that's not right. Right? He attacks this. And, and, he's, and he starts, first of all, how does he start the whole thing off again? You should be able to recognize it right now, right? By this time he says again, if you are the son of God. Right? When the power and the control didn't work, when I offered the bribe and the bribe didn't work, I'm going to go back to attacking his character, his intelligence at this point. I'm going to go back and try to attack his heart. Do you really still believe you're the son of God? Are you really falling for that? Do you really believe you're the child of God? Do you really believe you're saved? Wait a minute. You've seen your life. You know how your life is. You really believe Jesus is going to keep, uh, just his blood is, is, is just never going to run out. You believe that? Yes, because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that his grace is great enough and his love is wide enough, right? That's what, listen, that's what you should be saying when you hear that voice. Yes. Well, you failed, but I get back up with the help of Christ. I don't stand on my own strength. I stand up on the greatness of God. I stand up on the strength of Christ as he approaches the cross. I am going to fail, but God in his grace picks me up every time and forgives me. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you better get used to some of those questions. Are you really a Christian? Do you love Christ? Are you really saved? Because that's what your haters are going to say. And then now this is the third time this temptation, right? Jesus is faced with this one thing, man, that's constantly, uh, I think it's almost through the whole thing, but, but he's faced with this idea of safety. 
The devil doesn't misquote. He basically says, listen, you don't have to get hurt. You, you don't have to endure the coming pain. You don't have. You can avoid the cross, Jesus. I'm trying to help you avoid the cross. By the way, not too many of us would like turn back this thing. Not too many of us would like say uh, no to this kind of idea. The devil, the devil tempts Jesus here with safety and with comfort. And that's like the theme, right? I love Matt Chandler. He, he does an exposition on this, and he says this about the whole thing. He says, the devil is working hard here to make sure that Jesus doesn't suffer. The devil says, oh, you're hungry? God wouldn't want you hungry. Eat some bread. What? Are there men trying to kill you? Men who are rejecting you? Let me give you all the power on earth to rule and control over them. What? You're going to the cross? You're going to be beaten, whipped, and drowned in your own blood? No, 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 no. Doesn't the scripture say that not even your feet would be hurt? I mean, think about it. Isn't it interesting here that every attack from what's evil is not built around absolute wickedness, but it's built around comfort? Come on, just be comfortable. Just be comfortable. Listen, the truth of the church is she's not out doing anything wicked. The truth is she's still stuck in her uh, lazy boy. That's the church. It's just hard to come out of that lazy boy. And I understand, I got a lazy boy at the house. When the feet gets kicked up, it's like you're like a turtle on the back. I know you get that one where it sticks, and you're like, I can't get out. And you're pushing as hard as you can to get the seat, the thing, and you're like stuck in it. And I go, oh, well, I guess I have to lay here. Just give me a blanket and a pillow. Right? We love comfort. Isn't that what we pray for? Lord, I need my bills paid. I need everything done. I need all this. I need everything. Please don't make it painful, God. Please make my life as easy as possible because you're just so good when it's easy, right? We pray for people in our life that comfort our hearts. We pray for things that make us more comfortable. We pray that we'll never have to sacrifice anything valuable for the cause of anything. We pray ultimately for everything to be easy. We do. The problem with that is that everything worth anything involves risk. It involves not being comfortable. You want to own a house? You're going to have to endure 20 or 30 years worth of stress and making payments. Hello, adulthood. You want a marriage that lasts 50 years? You can't make someone love you. You have to compromise. You're going to have to put your heart out there, and you're going to have to take a risk that it gets broken. You're going to have to compromise. It can't be your way all the time, no matter what. Well, man, I feel like it's always their way. Well, whatever it takes to make it work. You want a 50-year marriage? I can tell you there are a lot of guys that they, that I love this one. I see guys like 50, 60 years in marriage. They're like, it's real easy. You just learn two words. Yes, ma'am. That's all you got to learn. Like, well, that means you just like uh, uh, sacrificed all your, you just did everything your wife told you. Yeah, that's pretty much, that was pretty easy. Seemed like an easy deal to me. I mean, you know what I found? That the more often times that I compromise, the more I get to do the things I like to do. Because my wife will know that I've built a reputation that I will give in. That I will allow her things to go her way and allow things. And so over time, what, it, what it's done for us is like, it's like I've earned the right to know that she knows my heart is to, is to make her happy. She knows my heart now is to, is, to, is to do things that would help her or set her up or promote her to places and new heights or to teach her. There's times where like she comes to me and she goes, I need you to put your pastor hat on and talk to me. Not, my, not, not the husband hat right now. I need this. I need advice for this. Okay, okay. But we built, you know, after 20 years, this is our 20 year this year. After 20 years, uh, we've developed a relationship that far extends just being married, just being a couple. We're friends. I mean, we're best of friends. And, and it, it took 20 years to get there. It does. It takes time. 
And, I, and I, the, the great thing about a long marriage is that it just gets better. I think it gets better. Like, it's totally different because you end up knowing each other so, so much more than it just was like when you were dating and stuff. And, and it's not that there aren't hardships. There are always hardships. But that's part of what makes the marriage so great. Don't think about it. If you have to fight for it, it was worth, it's something worth fighting for, man. If there's anything worth fighting for, it's something like that. Right? It's not comfortable all the time. It's not easy. It's not easy. The old saying is that good is the enemy of great. You know why most people never have a great life? Because they never, they never achieve anything because it always involves leaving safety and comfort behind. Too often we settle for good when we could have great. Well, I got a pretty good life. Man, everything's pretty good. I got all my bills paid. Everything's good. I mean, that's where my life was, man, when I came to Marble Falls. My bills were paid. I bought a brand new home. Well, not a brand new home, but I bought a home. Got a heck of a deal on it. Had a little swimming pool. Got a heck of a job that pays me two big bonuses every year, like ridiculous bonuses, like if you keep going. Like, it's the place you don't leave, all right? Brand new cars, brand new vehicles. God calls me into ministry. The idea begins to form and says, God's basically calling me and says, man, I want you to do something. And, and, and God's already telling me in my heart, I'm not going to let you live like all these other pastors. It's time for change. I'm like, what do you mean, God? He says, I need you. Like, he began to plant the seed of, of the apostles. I mean, you know, I used to have a saying, especially when I first started, like, really wanting to dive in ministry, that God had kind of put in my heart. He says, if you want to see what the apostles saw, you must give all. Used to be a little saying that I just said to myself, if you really want to see what the apostles saw, you've got to give everything that they gave, which they gave their lives. That means you've got to let go of the home. This idea I had about buying property, I'll never fit the, forget the day where, you know, God began to say, listen, I'm about to, I'm about to take some of your comforts from you and your dreams from you. And I remember sitting there reading uh, through Ezekiel one morning and just crying because in Ezekiel it says to the Leviticus priest, which here is as, as a call to be a pastor, uh, that is the pastors of the Bible. And in, and in there, there's a part where it says that one of the big sins of the Leviticus priests was that they owned property. Now, listen, we live in the New Testament. Pastors can own property and those things like that. But one of the things God was convincing me of is, is uh, you know the reason why they couldn't own anything? Because what they owned was God. And God began to say, what do you want? You want property? You want some life? You want some dream? Or do you want me? What do you want? And it's like, for me, this was my Joshua moment. Choose this day to whom you are going to serve. Are you going to serve me or are you going to keep serving your own self? And listen, I'm not saying owning any of those things is a bad thing. I'm saying that when God approached me about these things and God began to speak to me about these things, there became a choice about what I wanted. None of what I wanted was comfortable. And it was going to cost me everything. To, to know that I'm going to, for all those things that I had dreamed up to this point, they die there on the cross that day. That I will embrace a life completely about serving others and doing the work of Christ in the hopes that one day I will see what the apostle saw because that is the great life to me. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. I, I gladly, I'd give up all my finances. I give up all of it. I could, that's my wife knows. Like, it's kind of like our love to hate thing there because I, like, I could care less about vehicles. I could care less about stuff. I don't care about my house. I don't care about the clothes on my back. I don't care how my hair looks. I don't care how my face looks. What I care about is seeing what the apostles saw. What I care about is the glory of God and witnessing the power of Jesus Christ upon others. What I care about is what God cares about, and that's all I care about. I don't care about anything else. Is that easy? Absolutely not. It's miserable and yet great. It's like being miserably in love, foolishly in love, right? 
I mean, that's how Jesus is, right? I, can't, I mean, come on, man. Jesus loves us. Are you kidding me? How many times have you let him down? He's a fool. Praise God. Praise God he is. Praise God. That's why it seems to be like a walking conundrum, right? As much as I tell you, oh, man, if it's miserable, why are you still doing it? Because I love it. I don't know. It's, it's like a love-hate thing. I don't know. It's not comfortable. That I hate that part. But I love him. And I love it every time I see your lives transform. I mean, some of you, I've watched God do some crazy things in your life already. Some of you, I've seen y'all come from like places where y'all were uh, in church and y'all were good about going to church. And some, like some of you have been with me for a long time. Man, I've watched you just mature into leaders. You're leaders now. There's, there's no need. You don't sit underneath me or anything like that. You're, you're all of my equal. You could go out and make disciples now. You know what it takes to be a leader in the church. And some of you, man, you're finding that out for the first time, and it's awesome to watch because it's everything I live for. That's what's worth it to me. So it's all of it's worth it. Jesus, he's still fighting. Three times the devil tempts him, but he can't do anything, right? We're going to face temptations every day. You face things just like Jesus had to face. And some of you are tempted with all kinds of weird stuff, right? My wife will tell you, she's always tempted with very things that were very materialistic. She's like, I just want like a nice house. Why is that so bad? I'm like, it's not bad. God, God's okay with that. Yeah, but you're never going to allow that to happen. I'm just saying that whatever we need will be just, will be modest. Because I want to keep the majority of our funds to go towards things that could help ministry. I don't have anything wrong with any pastor making a big salary or any, any ministers or evangelists making anything big. Here's my thing is, I think all of the Bible's okay with that. I think as people, and this is kind of where, I think we're called to live a lie that shows radical salvation. And you know how radical the world would be? Can you imagine if all the pastors just right now said, I'm taking 50% of my wages and we're going to put it into missions right now. If every pastor did that. Can you imagine if every pastor said, you know what, we're going back to work, guys. All our paychecks, we're going to give them back to the church. We're going to use those things and funds uh, different ministries that are going to happen around here. And we're going to lead the way by, by working alongside the people. Can I, I mean, one of the greatest things I think God's gift to me was going back to work and being around people again. Because if I hadn't gone back to work, I wouldn't have met Michael and Brittany. I wouldn't have met Stephanie and Nathan. I wouldn't have met some of these wonderful people that I've got to meet along the way and all these people that got, got introduced from one or the other and stuff like that because, man, that is what Jesus, that's, this is it. I'm like, to me, this is everything I preach about where we get to go into the workplace. We go in the places that we work with, the people that we meet, and we just love on them. And like one of the, I think one of the things that I love the most is, is, is just showing how normal we are sometimes, right? I know we can get weird. I'm Pentecostal. I can talk in weird languages and all that kind of stuff and get weird. But for the most part, I'm normal. Don't ask my wife. Some of us get caught up in all kinds of things. We get caught up in materialistic stuff, like I said. Some of us are tempted just to keep our life safe, our life comfortable, never really take a risk, never really put ourselves out there. Um, by the way, there's no such thing as great faith without great risk. Guys, if you want great faith, Lord, give me the faith to believe. Okay, so when he sends you that issue that's going to require you faith, remember, you prayed for that. And then don't get ridiculous like some of my pastor friends like, I'm never praying for patience. Well, that's dumb. They're like, well, it's going to happen anyway. So you still pray for stuff. That doesn't make any sense to me. You don't pray for it. You know? You got something? Or you just raise your hand? 
This seems like a good spot to me for prayer. Hebrews 2.18 says, Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Come up here, let's pray for you. Ladies, let me have some ladies up here.
pray real quick, real quick. Just, just, just prayer. Just we can stay where we're at here, real quick. Father, Lord, for those that are hurting, God, those who are struggling, illness, sicknesses, things like that, God. Lord, we we call a healing out upon our family, upon the children of God. Those who are here and those who aren't, God. Those who are in other churches right now who are struggling, God, need a healing, God. Maybe, maybe where they're at, they don't believe that you can do it, God. It's neither here nor there, Lord. We pray for them right now and we intercede before them, before them, God. That you would go before us, Lord, and just heal them right now where they're at, God. Doesn't matter what church they're at, God. That you would go out and you would heal them right now, Father. Lord, that you would begin to minister to them, God. Just as if you ministered to the lost, God, that your heart would pour out towards them, God. You are the great physician, God. We're not asking that you spare from them comfort or you spare from them uh, 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 different issues, God. But what we're asking, God, is in your time and in your right way, God, when you know what is done is done, God, you would move forward and heal them. Father, we thank you for this morning's service, God. We thank you for your word, God. Help us as we are going to be tempted, God, by things, by our... Lord, help us when the devil and when people uh, that, are, that are used by the enemy, God, uh, put seeds of doubt upon us about who we are. We are your children. We are the called children of God. Anointed for purpose, God. Lord, reveal to us, O Lord, those purposes. So that our suffering is not in vain, Lord, but give us heavenly wisdom in those moments, God. Give us the faith to endure and the courage to stand. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Guys, I love you this morning. Hug somebody's neck. Don't leave out of here without hugging on somebody.